From NPR News in Mexico City, this is Weekend Edition. I'm Eder Pralta. In the West African country of Niger, a standoff between coup leaders in the West. Will the threat of force help or hurt? Also, leprosy. It's hard to get and easy to treat. So why is it still popping up in central Florida? This is the equivalent of me asking you, what did you have for dinner seven years ago? Plus, kids these days. A Colorado school district tries to make school lunch more alluring. That is really good. It looks like a real chicken nugget. With a new mystery meat. It's Sunday, August 6. The news is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Former President Donald Trump used remarks in South Carolina last night to once again lash out at the Justice Department. Speaking at a Republican fundraising event, Trump took aim at special counsel Jack Smith and said he's facing federal indictments because he's beating President Biden in the polls. And if I wasn't, if I wasn't, we wouldn't be under investigation by deranged Jack Smith. He's a deranged human being. You take a look at that face, you say, that guy is a sick man. There's something wrong with him. Trump's speech came two days after he pleaded not guilty to four criminal charges in Washington, D.C. for his alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election and for his role in the January 6th insurrection. The main street in front of the Fulton County Courthouse in Atlanta will be blocked to traffic starting tomorrow. Sam Greenglass of member station WABE reports the stepped-up security measures come as prosecutors prepare to hand down indictments for election interference in 2020. Normally, Pryor Street is a bustling downtown thoroughfare. On one side is the county government complex. On the other is the courthouse, which has big stone columns and is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Now, orange security barriers will block traffic for two weeks, and two lanes are reserved for media parking. These are the first visible signs of the high-profile case that may land here soon. Most staff have been instructed to work remotely. Judges were asked not to hold in-person hearings. District Attorney Fonnie Willis says her office is ready. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. The Texas Attorney General's office is appealing a state court ruling designed to clarify exceptions in the state's abortion bans for pregnancies that endanger a patient's health or life. NPR Sarah McCammon reports the appeal means the state's abortion bans are back in effect. In a ruling on Friday, a state judge in Austin sided with 13 Texas women and two doctors who'd filed a lawsuit seeking to clarify medical exceptions in the state's abortion bans. The women say their health was endangered after they were denied abortions under Texas law during medically complex pregnancies. The judge had temporarily blocked enforcement of the laws against doctors who perform abortions based on a good faith judgment that the abortion was medically necessary, including in cases of fatal fetal abnormalities. The Texas Attorney General's office is appealing that injunction to the Texas Supreme Court. In a statement, the AG's office said, Texas pro-life laws are in full effect. This judge's ruling is not. It's not known when or if the Texas Supreme Court will weigh in. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. A man is in custody after an hours-long standoff in Charlestown last night. 
Boston police SWAT teams and negotiators came to a Caldwell Street apartment around 4.30 yesterday afternoon for reports of an emotionally disturbed person. Witnesses say he had a firearm. Officers negotiated with him for hours until 1 this morning. He was taken to a local hospital for an evaluation. No one was reported injured. Detectives are applying for a search warrant for the apartment. The family of Charles Ogletree says a funeral service for the late Harvard law professor will be planned in the coming weeks. Ogletree died last Friday at the age of 70. Guy Oriel Charles holds a professor, the professorship Harvard Law established to honor Ogletree. Charles calls Ogletree a legal giant. He was a brilliant legal thinker trying to think about racial justice and questions of racial equality. So he is someone who had a tremendous impact on not just the law, but on American society much more broadly. In 2016, Ogletree disclosed that he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. New Hampshire State Police are asking for the public's health after a 59-year-old woman was killed in her home. Denise D'Amato Coe was found dead inside her home in Danville. The Attorney General's office says she died of multiple gunshot wounds. No arrests have been reported. Watertown is hosting a memorial service tonight to remember the lives lost to nuclear bombs in Japan. More than 210,000 people died when the U.S. dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki back in August 1945. The event will include a vigil and the launching of candle boats on the Charles River. It gets underway at 7.30 tonight in Watertown Square. The United States has been eliminated from the Women's World Cup after losing to Sweden 5-4 in a dramatic penalty kick shootout. In the forecast, it'll be sunny today, the highs near 83 degrees, partly cloudy tonight, low of 66. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of showers in the afternoon, the highs around 79 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia for 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Ader Peralta in Mexico City. Aisha Roscoe's on vacation. Former President Trump is trying to take his latest indictment and use it to his advantage. His fundraising website's asking for donation to end what he's calling a witch hunt. And at campaign appearances, he's even, he's even making light of his legal troubles. I consider it a great badge of honor because I'm being indicted for you. I am being indicted for you. That was Trump last night at South Carolina State Republican Party fundraiser. NPR's White House correspondent Franco Ordonez joins us. Hey there, Franco. Hey, Ader. Franco, the indictment says Trump allegedly helped defraud voters, but he's telling supporters he's standing up for them. What do you make of this strategy? I mean, politically speaking, if you look at the polls, it's working. I mean, he gave two very defiant speeches this weekend. You noted the South Carolina one. He also called in that speech it a sham indictment that amounted to election interference. Here's more. And it is an outrageous criminalization of political speech. They're trying to make it illegal to question the results of an election. 
Of course, Ader prosecutors say the indictment is about Trump's actions, not just his words. But that hasn't stopped Trump. He's been all over social media, for example, so much so that the Justice Department has actually asked a federal judge to issue a protective order against Trump after Trump appeared to promise revenge on anyone who goes after him. The order specifically seeks to limit what Trump can say about the case. But all day yesterday, Trump's lawyers and the justice team were just going back and forth, trading legal jabs about the order. And a judge in the case actually denied Trump's team's request for more time to respond to the order. So they're going to have to respond by tomorrow. Hmm. So up until now, uh, other Republican candidates for president have largely defended Trump. Uh, But that's changing, right? A little bit, yes. I mean, because of his popularity with the base, Trump's basically been able to turn this case into kind of a litmus test for his rivals. And those who have criticized him have sometimes gotten booed on the campaign trail. But time is running out for them to distinguish themselves, so you're hearing from some of them speak out more than before. One example, former Vice President Mike Pence, he went after Trump last week, saying his former boss tried to pressure him to lie and put himself before the Constitution. Pence's campaign went so far that it's now selling T-shirts with, quote, Hmm. too honest written on them. That's, of course, a reference to the indictment and Trump allegedly telling Pence that he's too honest because he wouldn't reject electoral votes. And then there's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. While he first defended Trump after the indictment, he's since gone a little further, stating that the 2020 election was not stolen. That's despite Trump's claims. And while the Republican field's been trying to figure out how to deal with these indictments, has President Biden just been sitting back and watching? Kind of. I mean, as Trump was being indicted, Biden was enjoying the beach. He and the First Lady were on vacation. They went to dinner in Rehoboth, Delaware. He even got to see the new movie Oppenheimer. It was really, you know, quite the split screen with Trump in court. And purposefully or not, it did fit into a theme that Biden's campaign has been pushing. And that's kind of to make the contrast between the drama surrounding Trump and Biden's, you know, no frills approach, you know, kind of just head down working through his agenda. And Franco, quickly, um, Biden is back in Washington this week. What's his agenda? Well, he does get back tomorrow, but he'll actually only be here in Washington, D.C. for a few hours before he leaves again. He's going to host the Houston Astros baseball team, who won last year's World Series. And soon after that, he's going to leave for Arizona, a key battleground state to tout his work on the economy. He's also going to go to New Mexico and Utah, and it's all part of a travel blitz by several of his top officials to tout that work. It's all tied to an August 16th event at the White House to celebrate the anniversary of passage of his infrastructure and climate bill. That's NPR's Franco Ordonez. Franco, thank you. Thank you, Ader. A recent research letter to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is raising eyebrows amongst medical professionals and the general public. While the U.S. still has very few cases of leprosy, a team of doctors have identified an uptick in cases across the country, and 80% of them are coming from the state of Florida alone. Stranger still, 20% of all cases were identified in one single region of the Sunshine State, Central Florida. 
We have the authors of that letter, both dermatologists on the line now, Dr. Rajiv Nathu and Charles Dunn. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. So before we get into the specifics of your research, Dr. Nathu, could you remind us about what leprosy is exactly? Absolutely. So leprosy is a uh, bacterial condition caused by a, a bacteria called Mycobacterium leprae, very slow growing, and it has a tendency to involve the skin and the peripheral nerves. Hmm. So if you have leprosy, how do you know? What are the symptoms? So either as mild as a few patches on the skin that tend to be hypopigmented, or as severe on the other side of the spectrum when their immune system's not doing well with the bacteria, of multiple widespread papules and nodules or bumps essentially across the skin with other characteristic features like a thickening of the forehead skin or an enlargement of the ears. Hmm. Dr. Dunn, um, how do people in the U.S. usually contract leprosy? Typically through prolonged contact via respiratory droplet with someone who has untreated disease. And I think it's important to note that in this situation, we're talking about many months. We're not talking about hours or days. Now, in the United States, it's important to note that a good portion of these cases, we actually do not have reported close contact with someone who has untreated disease. It's just such an uncommon illness. And in these situations, it's a little bit of a conjecture. One of the main theories out there is that it's transmitted to people from animals. And the most common vector or animal that we know that carries this bacteria is the nine-banded armadillo. Hmm. Is it easy to treat? Yes. Treatment consists of a multi-drug regimen for several months, depending on what clinical variation of leprosy they have. And important to note that uh, within you know, a few days of treatment, the effect of the contagious aspect of things tend to dissipate. So, I, I mean, it sounds like what you guys are telling me is that it's difficult to contract, it's easy to treat. So why is this still around? Why is leprosy still around? That's a very educated question and one that I don't think that we have a perfect answer for. And part of the reason is because of the unique nature of this bacteria. So this is a very slow-growing bacteria that replicates over the course of years. So whenever you're contact tracing a bacteria like this, it's not like I can ask you, where were you 24 hours ago in that mm. you contracted this illness? This is the equivalent of me asking you, what did you have for dinner seven years ago? Well, I can't tell you mm. what I had for dinner yesterday. And so contact tracing can be very challenging. So I can tell you that the suspicion that we have is that the complexity of the zoonotic component of this is expanding for reasons that we don't fully understand yet. Hmm. So the U.S. averages 150 to 200 cases per year. Um, that's a pretty small number. And both of you have been very clear that the letter that you've written should not be used to drum up any kind of panic, that people should view this all in its proper context. So what is it that you hope folks do with this information, Dr. Dunn? This is more of a observation that we were hoping to impress upon the clinical community to encourage us to not get our blinders on when we are seeing these patients, number one, and maybe to dig into the why, maybe to explore more of the environmental component to this disease process to see if we can drive those numbers even lower. 
Dr. Nathu, as far back as records go, leprosy has carried quite the stigma. My colleague Pam Fessler wrote a book about how biblical stories of punishment led to the mass confinement of people who contracted the disease just a century ago. It all worked together for the public to basically demand that public health officials do something about this. We need to confine these people and get them out of our streets and our communities. Do you think that this kind of stigma still affects us today, still haunts this disease? Absolutely. I think that's why it's garnered such media attention and the fear of high contagion. And that's quite the opposite. It's not highly infectious. Most folks are not susceptible to infection. 95% of the human population is not susceptible to infection. Most people, 95% of people are not susceptible to this disease. Why? The reason that 95% of the human population is not susceptible to infection is because there's an innate immunity to this bacteria present in 95% of the population. Hmm. So what's next? Um, what questions do you both have that you would want to answer? And what questions do you have about this disease in Florida? Right. I think the, the biggest question that we have would be in regards to that uh, environmental reservoir. We, we've noticed um, that the soil spe specimens have shown mycobacterium leprae in the past, but what does that mean? Is that a mechanism of disease transmission or is it that just a simple finding that has no clinical relevance? So we need to hone in in, in the scientific community in terms of transmission. Dr. Rajiv Nathu and Dr. Charles Dunn, thank you for speaking to us today. Thank you. It's truly a pleasure. listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Steve Brown, 69 degrees in Boston at 818. Coming up in about 15 minutes on 90.9 WBUR, researchers have connected the DNA from enslaved individuals buried in a Maryland village to nearly 42,000 present-day descendants. That story's ahead here on WBUR. The United States has been eliminated from the Women's World Cup after losing to Sweden 5-4 in a kick, -out shoot, a, a kick shootout. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. And the Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture with Goldfest a celebration of the 50th anniversary of hip-hop, August 12th, boston.gov slash goldfestival. I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. A federal judge has denied a request from former President Donald Trump's legal team for a deadline extension over the handling of evidence in the January 6th insurrection case. Trump's attorneys have until tomorrow afternoon to respond to the Justice Department's proposal for a protective order. The U.S. women's soccer team is out of the World Cup after losing to Sweden on penalty kicks. The game went into overtime after the teams failed to score in the first 90 minutes of play. 
Former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan spent the night in a high-security prison after being arrested on Saturday. Khan was sentenced to three years in prison for corruption. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Ada Peralta. The coup in Niger 10 days ago is just one example of the political instability that has thrown some West African governments into turmoil as they try to fight off Islamic extremists. And this instability has prompted a type of proxy battle reminiscent of the Cold War. To address terrorism, some countries have turned to the West for help, while others have relied on Russia and its Wagner mercenary group. Niger itself was allied with the U.S., but the new leadership now appears to be aligning itself with Russia. To understand what these political dynamics, to understand these political dynamics, we called Wasim Nasser, a senior, fel- a senior research fellow at the Sufan Center. He says the instability is particularly pronounced in Niger and two of its neighbors, Burkina Faso and Mali. We're talking about multiple coups because, for example, Niger has a history of coups, you see. Mm-hmm. Also, we had, like, in the past years, a double coup in Mali. Like, the military made the coup, then they made the coup inside of the coup. In Burkina Faso, it was the same. Last year, there was a coup, and before it, another coup. And each time in Mali and Burkina Faso, uh, the, the argument or the justification of the coup that made, of course, by the military was the security situation. But each time they take on power, the situation deteriorates. Let's talk a little about the geopolitics of this. Um, I mean, Niger has been a key ally to the West, to the U.S., uh, to France especially. But this region seems to be tilting toward Russia. I mean, what have Western countries and what have other West African countries said about this coup? Well, it is true because when we had the first uh, coup in this series, in Mali, and then a second coup, and the coup in Burkina, and then a second coup in Burkina. Well, people thought that they can make coups and get away with it. Hmm. And that's what's happening in Niger. And because even when you speak of people who were part of the government in Niger in the first hours, they were very, like, surprised. Why isn't anybody doing anything for us, meaning our Western allies? So at best, it is seen as uh, weakness, and at worst, it is seen as treason. We are talking about our allies, you see? So on the other part of the scope that that we are talking about, they see, for example, Russians and uh, Wagner mercenaries were getting involved and getting their hands dirty and sticking with the ones who are described as their allies. Hmm. But interestingly, ECOWAS, which is the community of West African states, has threatened to use force uh, to return President Bazoum to power. And ECOWAS is backed by the West. Um, Do you think that that threat of force, uh, they've given the military uh, coup leaders an ultimatum, do you think that threat of force is real? Well, I don't know if it's going to play, actually, but they have the means to do it. If nothing is done, no more coups will be prevented. 
And so if this coup in Niger works out, all governments uh, in Africa should be worried about their military. So it's a very important moment because otherwise, if nothing is done, well, maybe uh, Western powers should uh, leave the region, actually, because there's no point in staying there if you are not willing to at least accept that the rules of the games are changing and adapt to them. What do you mean by the rules of the game are changing? Well, actually, the Russians are playing dirty. Hmm. They are sending mercenaries who are committing humorous abuses. They are backing coups. They are, you know, it's the, the, the Cold War play, you see. So if Western powers think that only by development and the seminars and only by thinking war on terror, things will work out uh, by themselves, um, I don't think it will work out. So, I, I mean, what you're describing is just a region full of instability. Um, and it's, look, this is already a region uh, that has been battered by violence. Um, what's the humanitarian outlook here? It's a disaster. Wagner's involvement that I got to work on uh, very seriously in Mali for a year. There's a blood train uh, behind their involvement and zero results against jihadis, you see, because they are uh, killing innocent people in villages in Mali and Burkina Faso, which is fueling the recruitments of jihadi groups, uh, actually, and without uh, getting any actual military results on the ground. So the civilians are paying the highest price. That's Wasim Nasser. He's a senior research fellow at the Sufan Center. Wasim, thank you so much. Thank you. Here in Mexico, where I am hosting from today, we've been focused on the end of an infamous investigation. For about eight years, a group of independent investigators was trying to find out what happened to 43 college students who went missing in Ayotzinapa in southern Mexico back in 2014. Last week, the group issued a final report and left the country without really cracking the case. I spoke to one of the investigators, Carlos Martin Beristein, just before he left Mexico. He told me he still remembers what the parents of the missing college students told him nearly eight years ago. Always tell, the, tell us the truth. Carlos Martin Beristein remembers what the parents of the missing college students told him nearly eight years ago. Always tell us the truth. Y nos dijeron, Por favor, no se they also told us, please don't sell out. Betty Stein, a psychologist, has spent his life working with victims of human rights abuses. He's been on truth commissions across Latin America, and no one had ever asked him not to sell out. Pero se demuestra una experiencia histórica en México. That points to a lived experience in Mexico. De qué es lo que le ha pasado a la gente que... That is, what's happened to people who have been caught in a strategy of deception. Indeed, the case of the 43 students who went missing from a teacher's college in Ayotzinapa in 2014 has become symbolic of an epidemic in Mexico. The government has lied over and over about what happened to the students. And like the more than 100,000 people reported missing in the country, they have been left in a purgatory neither dead nor alive. The impunity of this country ends up having a huge psychological toll that we psychologists call learned helplessness. In the end, you learn that you can't change everything, that everything ends up the same. The group of international investigators did make a difference, though. When they came in, the government was saying that one of the drug cartels killed the students, incinerated their bodies, and threw their remains in a dump. 
The investigators quickly found the government planted evidence that they tortured witnesses to put out a convenient story. He says when they met with the families, they thanked investigators. They still didn't know where their children were. Pero estamos contentos porque se nos ha quitado un peso de encima. But they said, we're happy because a weight has been lifted. El peso de la mentira. The weight of the lie. The group of experts found the military was present at the sites of the kidnappings. They found that Mexican security forces had real-time knowledge. They had GPS locations of the perpetrators. Investigators found snippets of transcriptions of their conversations. They found references to full transcripts to more documents that the military refused to turn over. But this is as far as we can go. Our last report puts all the cards on the table. The last report makes it clear that the government was responsible for this crime, that the government worked hand-in-hand hand with the cartels to disappear the students, and that the government has in its hands the evidence it needs to tell the parents what happened to their children. In a lot of ways, it was a truth the families knew from the beginning. When they march every year in Mexico City, they leave graffiti on monuments, on pavements, on the walls of businesses. It reads, it was the state. Es una verdad que confirma el sufrimiento. It's a truth that validates their suffering. Y también a veces la impotencia, ¿no? But it also validates their helplessness. Everyone knows it was the state. Yet no one's been convicted and Mexicans keep disappearing. Nothing ever changes. And suddenly, he says, a truth that should liberate instead paralyzes. Some conservatives are ready to reshape government if Donald Trump wins in 2024. They want to slash what they call the administrative state. Civil servants should be oriented to accomplishing the agenda of a president. Not the office of the president, not their institutions. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, a conversation with Trump's former budget director who wants to overhaul the executive branch. You can tune in, you can tune in, tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Thanks to extra pandemic funding, schools across the country tried a new idea free school lunches to every student regardless of need. Now, even though the funding's expired, nine states, including Colorado, are keeping universal free lunch. Colorado's public radio, Jenny Brunden, reports that the school nutritionists say the meals are healthier than what students would buy elsewhere. School cafeterias statewide are gearing up to feed more children. But one district, Greeley, already provides free lunches and has for the last three years. Still, fewer than half the kids in this district north of Denver actually eat school lunch regularly. But the numbers are going up. Almost every kid in the district ate school lunch at least once last year. Danielle Bach is on a mission to get even more. Now, my staff think that we can serve 100% of kids, and I tell them that's a lot of meals. <laughs> So I'm going to shoot for 95% next year. That's what I want. Bach heads Greeley's nutrition program. She says free meals for all, reduced stigma, and more kids headed to the cafeteria. Now, Bach wants to get those hard-to-reach kids to stay on campus for what research says is the healthiest meal kids will eat all day. We know that when we keep ninth and 10th grade kids in school during the meal period, they eat with us. But when we open up campus, they may not even eat. 
But even when a hamburger, fries, and a drink are free at school, cafeterias still face stiff competition. In high schools with open campuses, the urge to leave and fill up on Chick-fil-A or Chipotle is strong. That's a huge challenge for nutrition chiefs like Denver Public Schools' Teresa Hafner. A lot of students are already eligible for free meals, but not a lot take it up. This year, when everybody can get free breakfast and lunch, she wants to be ready. So she's here on this massive convention floor. It's the School Nutrition Association's annual convention. You have the breakfast and crustables? Yeah, so these are the egg, turkey, sausage, and cheese. For high school students, Hafner's got her eye on more grab-and-go breakfast foods and a new coffee smoothie drink. And... I am super excited about this. Now she's looking at something else to entice a new generation of students. More and more, they want food and packaging that's good for the planet. This is jackfruit. It's a massive green fruit from Asia. But when cooked, it's a vegan or vegetarian option to pulled pork or chicken. She tries an enchilada bowl using jackfruit from a dole rep. Let me get a piece of cilantro on there for you. Okay. Enjoy. So you Hafner loves it. Alternatives to Meat, which is hard on the environment, is a growing section on the show floor. Along with Denver, Greeley has a sizable population of Muslim students who don't eat pork and some other meats prepared at school. This looks like whole muscle. It looks like a real chicken nugget. Danielle Bach and her executive chef, Chris Simmons, try some plant-based nuggets. That is really good. What? is the the protein what are we using what's this made out of it's soy protein to have a taste and texture that mimics chicken the rebellious foods booth is hopping after some students gave them rave reviews in a convention session chris how would we use that i think my first instinct would be to use it for like boneless wings the wing bars have been really popular in our high schools and then there's something else to entice kids packaging packaging yeah, packaging. Students pay attention to that now, thanks to billions of advertising dollars targeting them. I'd like to know about these. Yeah, these are what we call our grab-and-go green line. So these are a 99% compostable product. Bach and Simmons check out a sleek sandwich wedge in an upscale-looking package, something students might see off-campus. It costs a bit more, but Chef Simmons says there are trade-offs. Aside from being convenient and attractive, something else about this packaging could get kids into the cafeteria. What we're hearing from the generation of kids that we have now, even as young as third and fourth grade, is stop putting our food in plastic. Kids want recyclability and kids want a greener solution. Whether it's packaging or funky new alternatives, Box says the goal is to keep kids either in or somewhere near the building. Simply put, it fuels them to learn. None of us function well when we're hungry. Kids are no different. So when we're nourishing them, they're going back into class and they're learning. Nationwide, school cafeterias are still facing post-pandemic staffing shortages and higher food costs. But so far, the vast majority of Colorado school districts say they're ready and willing to feed more hungry kids. For NPR News, I'm Jenny Brendine in Denver. You're listening to NPR News. Black Americans who try to learn about their heritage often come to a dead end when researching their family trees. That's because few records would have been kept about any ancestors who were enslaved. But advances in DNA analysis may be able to help. WYPR's Scott Mausioni reports on a new study that connects unnamed slaves from Maryland to their descendants today. 
1979, workers expanding a Maryland highway came across a forgotten cemetery containing the bodies of enslaved people from the 1800s. They lived in what is known as Catoctin Furnace, a former ironworking village. About 30 bodies were exhumed and sent to the Smithsonian Institution for safekeeping. Now a partnership between the Smithsonian, Harvard University, a local historical society, and the biotech company 23andMe is using the DNA from those bodies to connect them to possible relatives in the present day. Aideen Harney is a population geneticist at 23andMe. The memory of the Catoctin individuals has been largely forgotten. And the records that do exist about their lives, they are you know, describing the Catoctin individuals in terms of property. Which meant their stories had largely been lost. To find out more about them, the team extracted DNA from their skeletal remains and compared the samples to 23andMe's database of genetic information made up of millions of direct-to-consumer ancestry tests. In a study that's now published in the journal Science, the researchers found that about 42,000 people who took one of the direct-to-consumer ancestry tests were in some way related to the people buried at Catoctin Furnace. And about 3,000 of those people were what researchers call close relatives. And that translates most likely to a relationship that's within nine degrees. So these are ninth degree relatives or closer. Meaning people today would be something like great, great, great grandchildren or cousins six times removed from the people buried there. The work is a massive breakthrough in genealogy for black Americans. Many have trouble researching their past because slave owners and traders often did not keep records on people they enslaved. That history has been obfuscated. It's been erased, it's been eliminated from our narrative. Elizabeth Comer is the president of the Catoctin Furnace Historical Society. We don't have, you know, any idea who these people were um, because they're anonymous within the cemetery. 1870 is largely considered a brick wall for black Americans who are looking to find out more about their ancestors because it's the oldest census where all black people were counted in the United States. Before that, records were sparse. What this genetic methodology potentially allows you to do is to jump over that brick wall. Doug Owsley is a curator at the Smithsonian. It's the first of its kind analysis to take historical DNA and tie it to really tens of thousands of individuals that are living today and make these connections with individuals who've labored at this iron forge in Maryland. Comer says she hopes continued DNA and historical research can find out who the closest 3,000 present-day relatives are and give them a chance to connect with this piece of their past. It's their history, and we want people to come to Catoctin, learn about Catoctin, and acknowledge the debt that we as the United States have to these um, skilled African-American ironworkers. Her dream is to create an organization where relatives can come together and celebrate their common ancestors. For NPR News, I'm Scott Massioni in Baltimore. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Brookline is planning to cut its elementary school world language programs. Brookline News says the district superintendent cited a shortage of teachers in making the decision. A quarter of the program's 26 full-time positions are unfilled heading into the school year.
The Obamas are remembering their professor from their Harvard Law School days. Charles Ogletree died Friday at the age of 70. He taught both Barack and Michelle Obama when they were students. The former president recalled how Ogletree used to hold sessions on Saturdays to help black students get through law school. He said students knew him as a supportive member mentor. The United States has been eliminated from the World Cup, Women's World Cup, after losing to Sweden in a dramatic penalty kick shootout. Another loss for the Red Sox yesterday. The Blue Jays beat the Sox 5-4. to four. Both teams will go at it again today as the Sox try to avoid the sweep. It'll be sunny today. The highs near 83 degrees, partly cloudy tonight, a low 66. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of showers in the afternoon. The highs around 79 degrees. It's 71 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Whatever your summer plans might be, maybe you're heading off to the Berkshires or the Cape or even, God forbid, somewhere outside Massachusetts, take me with you. Download the WBUR app and you'll have every episode of Wait, Wait at your fingertips. You can listen to WBUR live from anywhere and rewind if you missed something or just want to hear one of my bon mots over again. Get the WBUR app and never miss Wait, Wait. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. From Mexico City, I'm Ada Peralta. And you know what time it is? Llegó la hora de jugar the puzzle. Joining us is Will Schwartz. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Good to talk to you, Will. Good morning, Ader. So, Will, uh, could you remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Jim Vespi of Mamaroneck, New York. I said, name a well-known U.S. city in nine letters. Change the third and fifth letters to get the name of a beverage. What is it? Well, the answer is Pensacola, Florida. Change the third and fifth letters. You get Pepsi-Cola. Interestingly, a whole lot of solvers also pointed out about Charlotte, North Carolina, changed the fourth and sixth letters, and you get chai latte. If I had thought of that, I might have used that as a puzzle. <laughs> so this puzzle was really, really popular. We received over 1,600 correct submissions, and this week's winner is Paula Cerrone of Hershey, Pennsylvania. Congratulations, Paula, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So how long have you been playing the puzzle? Well, on and off for almost 30 years, but um, my son, my oldest son, sort of got hooked on it, and so we've both been doing it pretty regularly for the last seven years, and he actually doesn't know that I'm doing this today, that I'm on here today, but it's his 21st birthday, and so we, we didn't tell him so that he would be surprised. Well, happy birthday to him, um, and when you're not playing the puzzle, what do you like to do? Well, 
I like to um, hike, read, do lots of puzzles myself, perfect my pizza, things like that. <laughs> All right, Paula, are you ready to play the puzzle? Yes. Okay, well, let's do this. All right, Paula and Ader. I'm going to give you some words. Anagram each one into a word or phrase from baseball. For example, if I said petal, P-E-T-A-L, you would say plate, as in home plate. Here you go. Number one is idols, I-D-L-E-S. Slide. Slide is right. Good. Least, L-E-A-S-T. Steel. You got it, Steel. Mundo, M-U-N-D-O. Mound. You got it. Worth, W-O-R-T-H. Throw. Uh-huh. Kiters, K-I-T-E-R-S. Strike. Strike is it. Impure, I-M-P-U-R-E. Um, let's see. Empire? Empire, good job. Lupine, L-U-P-I-N-E. Okay, let's see. Um, hmm. Starts with an L. Okay, uh, line up? Line up, good one. The next one is a two-word answer, and your word is conked, C-O-N-K-E-D. Okay, on deck. On deck is right. Floppy, F-L-O-P-P-Y, and this is another two-word answer. Okay, um... Let's see, like pop fly or... Pop fly, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Infidel, I-N-F-I-D-E-L. Infield. You got it, infield, you got it. Okay. Here's a tough one, I think. Admires, A-D-M-I-R-E-S, admires. Okay, let's see. Um... It's a kind of pitch. Oh, okay. Um, I wish my dad were here. Let's see. Um, uh, what if I tell you the second letter is I? <laughs> Let's see. Side. And arm. Just a, oh, side, side arm. arm yeah. A side arm okay. pitch is right. <laughs> and here's the last one. Gurgles. G-U-R-G-L-E-S. Slugger. Slugger. Boy, nice job, Paula. Thank you. So obviously a baseball fan, huh? A bit, yes. <laughs> How are you feeling? I'm just thrilled to be here. <laughs> it's a little dream come true for Aww. me. <laughs> for playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Paula, what member station do you listen to? W-I-T-F. That's Paula Cerrone of Hershey, Pennsylvania. Thanks for playing the puzzle, Paula. Thanks so much. All right, well, what is next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Michael Schwartz of Florence, Oregon. Name something found on a map of England. Two words. The last two letters of the first word are the same as the first two letters of the last. And if you go to England, you can't see this place. You can see it only on a map. What is it? So again, something found on a map of England, two words. The last two letters of the first word are the same as the first two letters of the last. And if you go to England, you can't see this place. You can see it only on a map. What is it? 
Hmm. When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries is Thursday, August 10th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call, and if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Will, muchísimas gracias. Thank you, Peter. There's a small gathering of Asian American writers happening at Loyalty Bookstore in Washington, D.C. tonight. It's being held by the Asian American Literature Festival Collective, a group of writers, journals, and organizations that were originally supposed to hold an event with the Smithsonian. However, that larger event was canceled last month. The reason? The Smithsonian says the planning of the event didn't meet its standards, but the partners say they're not convinced. Joining us now is Reggie Kabiko. He's a co-organizer of the Asian American Literary Festival Collective and a Washington, D.C.-based poet. Hey, Reggie, welcome. Hater, thanks for having me. What happened with the festival this year? So... You know, all of the Asian American writers and organizations, we were convening um, as early as January this year to really put together a robust, uh, imaginative program, which covered everything from children's literature to Asian adoptees to queer and trans and non-binary writers, among other celebrations of other Asian writers who are traveling from as far as Australia and New Zealand just to connect for this uh, historic event. We were ready to roll with this festival until we got this mysterious email from the acting director of the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center saying that with a heavy heart, we must um, shut down this festival. Um, No reason, but that's all we got. So in a statement to NPR, the Smithsonian said, and I quote here, the content of the panel discussions and presentations was never an issue. The cancellation was for administrative slash logistical reasons. Um, What's your reaction to that? Well, I find that um, pretty ridiculous and disingenuous considering that the organizers who I've worked with in 2017 and 2019 put together two festivals, two glowing reviews, and we had streamlined this third festival, making sure that everything logistically was ready to roll. It is also that Very close to the cancellation email, the Smithsonian had requested a list of programs um, that could be offensive. And so there were a few programs that could have sparked some red flags for the Smithsonian, the non-binary reading and the queer reading. So uh, again, they say it's not that, but Smithsonian has not given us uh, a formal conversation to discuss the matter. How uh, have the writers uh, who were planning on attending, how have they reacted to this news? 
Um, I think we've been grieving in, in so many different ways, particularly because the Asian American community has suffered during the pandemic. Um, there's been a lot of anti-Asian violence. It has been hard for writers to connect. And so this would have offered the kind of writing mentorship that is needed. It is also the opportunity for for younger writers to meet heroes and mentors and to create a lifelong career friendships. So um, it, it's, it's, it's devastating to say the least. So your collective has still decided to go ahead in a much smaller way uh, with a handful of other events. Why was it important for you to hold those events? Look, I, I have always believed that Washington, D.C. should be a home for literature and spoken word culture. And whenever there are writers who are gathering, it is a crime to not hear, hear their voice. And the multiplicity of voices are just well-regarded voices. Um, so I think it is an act of resiliency and just being able to hug and commune and connect in this small way, I think, is healing. So this is a healing. It is bittersweet. It is um, empowering. It's also um, a little sad, too. I understand uh, you brought a piece to share. Um, will you read it for us? Yes. Um, this is um, a short poem, and it's from my forthcoming collection called A Rabbit in Search of a Rolex. It's called Smithsonian. We are broken stories continually breaking, trying to connect with itself, for without this knowledge we would perish. We are celebrating while climbing an uphill battle just to be who we are. And when the dragon is unleashed on us, we are the ones who create the magic, cast the spells, and make the impossible possible. That's Reggie Kabiko, a co-organizer with the Asian American Literary Festival Collective. Reggie, thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. An indoor snow park in Lahore, Pakistan, is giving many people in that country a chance to experience true winter conditions for the first time in their lives. Betsy Joles takes us to this ice oasis in the middle of a hot Pakistani summer. Inside Winterland, Muhammad bin Mohsen and Musa Qureshi sit underneath an artificial snow machine. They've come to the park almost every other day since it opened in June. It's like a 15, the 15th time. We mostly come one day, leave one day, and then. The appeal of Winterland is pretty straightforward for Lahore's. Inside, it's cold, and outside, it's really hot. In the summer, temperatures in Lahore consistently hover around 100 degrees Fahrenheit. The air is thick with humidity, and you're sweaty pretty much all the time. Winterland is maintained at a chilly 14 degrees Fahrenheit. Qureshi says people come just to hang out in the cold. I'm seeing a lot of people enjoying and escaping the heat of the summer here. 
Lahore doesn't see freezing temperatures, but other areas in Pakistan do. The country is home to one of the world's highest peaks, and the northern areas resemble a winter dreamscape when blanketed by snow. In a side room, Nazim Hussein Shahid takes a break before going back into the park. He said many Pakistanis have never seen snow in their own country, and the current economic situation doesn't help. He and his cousins drove more than four hours from another city for the experience. They take NPR for a tour. There are ice bikes, ice bumper cars, and ice slides. First, we have to take uh, this slide kit from here. Then we have to go uh, outside. Then we have to come here. Sledders climb ice stairs and ride the frozen chutes back down. Winterland is inspired by the Harbin Ice Festival, an annual event in northeastern China famous for its epic ice sculptures. The structures in Winterland Lahore were created by designers from Harbin who came to Pakistan for the task. The difference, of course, is that Harbin in the winter is naturally cold and Lahore in the summer is not. Ali Chowdhury, chairman of Winterland Pakistan, said maintaining the cold conditions inside is a major task. Actually, power, yeah, that's the biggest challenge. We have almost three generators lined up as a backup because if we switch down, everything's going to melt. Winterland buys around 8,000 blocks of ice from factories that mass produce them in Lahore. The blocks are transported by truck at night, wedged together tightly to prevent them from melting. Once inside, the ice stays frozen as long as the temperature is maintained. Chaudhry thinks the effort that goes into cooling Winterland is worth it because of the demand for indoor activities in hot climates. It's a big requirement over there. Visitors seem to welcome the escape. On the day NPR visited in mid-July, Winterland was packed, even late into the night. 19-year-old Yamshin Sakib sees the connection between climate extremes and these kinds of attractions. Global warming and climate change, it's just going to get worse if you see the stats. So I think there are going to be more places like this. And as it gets hotter in Pakistan, there will likely be a greater fascination with snow, even if it's being made by a machine. For NPR News, I'm Betsy Jules in Lahore, Pakistan. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Ader Peralta. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is NPR. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR on this Sunday morning. Good morning, I'm Steve Brown. 71 degrees in Boston at a minute and a half before 9 o'clock. Tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR, everything is less than zero. Absolute zero, that is. We're going to one of the coldest places in New Hampshire tomorrow morning on WBUR. Start the week here with Rupert Shanoi. Another loss for the Red Sox yesterday. The Blue Jays beat the Sox 5-4. to four. Sox try to avoid the sweep this afternoon. It'll be sunny today. The high is around 83 degrees, partly cloudy tonight, a low of 66. 
Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of showers in the afternoon, the high 79 degrees. In Phoenix, the average high temperature last month was 114 degrees. This ER doctor saw a spike in people needing treatment for severe heat stroke. So use a body bag because it's non-permeable and cover them with ice, bury them with ice and water. That and other stories from the front lines of extreme weather and other climate-driven emergencies on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Mexico City, this is Weekend Edition. I'm Eder Peralta. Good morning. As democracy crumbles in Guatemala, dissidents have left the country in droves. We talked to one judge who hasn't given up the fight. And what happens when the weather is hot and the ice cream ain't cheap? We're looking at probably the ultimate in theft protection. Also, a musician way ahead of her time disappears without a trace. We talk about the ghost of Connie Converse. It's Sunday, August 6th. The news is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Federal prosecutors are asking a judge to step in and keep former President Donald Trump from disclosing evidence in the case against him involving alleged attempts to overthrow the 2020 election. NPR's Dave Mistich reports Trump continues to lash out at prosecutors and the judge has issued a deadline for the former president to respond to the government's request. In requesting the protective order, prosecutors cited Trump's social media post Friday, in which he wrote, quote, If you go after me, I'm coming after you. Attorneys for the former president asked for an extension to respond to prosecutors' request, but Chuckin denied that effort. She ordered Trump's legal team to respond by 5 p.m. Monday. Speaking at a South Carolina GOP dinner last night, Trump continued to take aim at the special prosecutor overseeing the case. Deranged Jack Smith. He's a deranged human being. You take a look at that face, you say, that guy is a sick man. There's something wrong with him. Trump was arraigned and pleaded not guilty last week on four counts, including conspiracy to defraud the government. Dave Mistich, NPR News. The U.S. government's credit rating was downgraded last week, anchoring the Treasury Department and triggering a major sell-off on Wall Street. Steve Beckner reports the surprise action by credit agency Fitch had other financial repercussions as well. An ebullient Wall Street had lately pushed stocks to their highest levels of the year, despite Federal Reserve interest rate hikes. But Fitch's decision to strip the U.S. of its AAA rating shocked traders. The Nasdaq composite plunged over 2%. The damage wasn't confined to stocks. In the bond market, where longer-term rates are set independent of the Fed, yields spiked. The 10-year Treasury note yield, to which many mortgage rates are tied, jumped to 4.2%. 
four-tenths above a few weeks ago. Other yields went higher, lifting the cost of financing federal debt and denting the dollar's global status. For NPR News, I'm Steve Beckner. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia has bombed a blood transfusion center in the northeastern part of the country. The BBC's James Reed reports Zelensky is condemning the attack as a war crime. The extent of the casualties is not clear. The Russian Air Force frequently uses glide bombs to strike targets from a distance without exposing its planes to Ukraine's air defenses. Ukraine has also been using longer-range weapons, including missiles and drones, to attack Russian logistics hubs and command centers. Each side is trying to erode the war-making capacity of the other, moral as well as physical, as their armies remain locked in battle. That's the BBC's James Reed reporting. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Steve Brown in Boston. There's a new lawsuit challenging a ballot question passed by Massachusetts voters who give to give pigs more space on farms. But animal rights activists are urging the state to put the law into effect. New England Public Media's Alden Bourne reports. The restrictions were put on hold after a restaurant group filed a lawsuit arguing Massachusetts should wait until the Supreme Court ruled on a similar law in California. Both states would require pork produced outside the state but sold within also meet the new standards. In May, the high court ruled the law was constitutional, but Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell held off on implementing it while continuing discussions with the plaintiffs. And pork producers have filed a new lawsuit against Campbell. Wayne Pacelli leads Animal Wellness Action. These delaying tactics in court are really injurious to the people of Massachusetts. And also, how are we filing these lawsuits after the Supreme Court decided the case? Campbell's office declined comment, citing pending litigation. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. New research shows southern New England is losing snow cover faster than anywhere else in North America. Salem State University professor Stephen Young says Boston has lost more than 30 days of winter snow over uh, cover between 2000 and 2022. Globally, snow cover has decreased by more than 2 million square miles in that same period. That's more than half the size of the United States. Canton's Little League team is advancing in its bid to go to the Little League World Series. The team played Vermont's St. Johnsbury Little League team in Connecticut yesterday. Canton won 12 to nothing. They'll next face Maine's team on Monday. No advance for the U.S. women's soccer team down in Melbourne, Australia. The United States has been eliminated from the Women's World Cup after losing to Sweden 5 to 4 in a dramatic penalty kick shootout. Red Sox lost yesterday 5-4. to four. Sox try to avoid the sweep this afternoon. Sunny today, the highs near 83, partly cloudy tonight. The lows will be around 66 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, chance of showers in the afternoon, a high of 79. It's 72 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at Mott.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Ada Peralta in Mexico City. My usual beat includes Central America, so I recently traveled to Guatemala at what is a critical moment for that country's democracy. A runoff election for president is scheduled for August 20th, 
And in a few minutes, we'll talk to a member of a reform party whose offices have been raided by police and its members harassed. Indeed, as Guatemala's democratic space has closed, judges, journalists, rights defenders, and tens of thousands of regular people have fled. But we'll start this hour on the top floor of a courthouse in Guatemala City. With the story of Yasmin Barrios, a judge who has lived through the most hopeful moments of the country's democracy and has now decided to fight through one of its most difficult. When I first see Judge Yasmin Barrios, she's in the middle of a judicial nightmare, far from where she was 10 years ago. That's when she handed down one of the most important rulings in Latin American history. She presided over a trial that found Efrain Rios Montt, the former military ruler of Guatemala, guilty of genocide, of ordering the extermination of a Mayan tribe during the civil war in the 80s. It was unprecedented and untouchable had been held to account. But just 10 days later, that sentence was thrown out, and now she's been relegated to this courthouse, to this trial about a gang running an extortion ring. And she can't get anywhere. First, authorities at the prison refused to turn on a video link. She protests. They turn it on. The accused gives the camera a middle finger. And authorities tell her the administrative judge, who has to be present for the hearing to begin, has gone missing. This is the second day of excuses. Clearly, they're obstructing the process. Judge Barrios sighs, shuffles papers, apologizes for the chaos, and adjourns. During a brief period, roughly between 2013 and 2019, Guatemala was hopeful. The country, its people, went on a voracious hunt for justice. There was the Rios Montt genocide trial. Also, huge protests against corruption brought down a sitting president. A UN-backed task force, La CICIG, investigated hundreds of people, including a president and vice president. At one point, a think tank found 21% of legislators were being investigated. La CICIG demostró el mecanismo de poder que generaba, digamos, la dominación. The CICIG lifted the veil on how the powerful dominated Guatemala. That's Luis Fernando Mac, a political scientist at the University of San Carlos in Guatemala. He says the roots of corruption, however, remained. All of the progress was based on political will and on high-level negotiations, but the structure still favored the elite. And when the rich and powerful found themselves going to jail, they struck back. They pressured the president and threw money at lobbying groups in the U.S. to get the international investigators out of the country. Now, cynically, they're using those same mechanisms to get back at their enemies. That means, for example, that the special anti-corruption office is being used to jail journalists and political foes. And the Electoral Commission has thrown out popular candidates in this election on flimsy allegations. The fortunes have also turned for people like Judge Jasmine Barrios. We meet at her house. In the past few years, there have been six assassination attempts against her. In her usual whisper, she tells me nonchalantly that in her last house, someone threw grenades into her living room. She says that when she became a judge, she had no idea how difficult this would be. I didn't know 
I'd have to risk my life. I didn't know I had to risk my family. I had no idea the effect my work would have on society. She calls that guilty verdict against Rios Mont, who is now dead, one of the most beautiful days in Guatemalan history. Even 10 years later, she marvels at the 718-page sentencing document. Some of the testimony still haunts her. Like one woman who described her whole village running from soldiers, her baby was crying, so she covered his mouth with a diaper. When the mother uncovered the baby's mouth, he was dead. I felt like this, so small. I said, my God, what great pain these women have been through. She says that judgment returned a bit of dignity to a people who have suffered so much. That is why she stays, she says. I believe that Guatemalans have the right to lead a better life. But in the past few years, more than two dozen judges have fled the country after receiving threats. The day before we spoke, a government witness in what was widely viewed as a sham trial against Guatemala's most prominent journalist claimed without evidence that Judge Barrios had taken bribes. The government has already cut her budget. She buys her own water, her own paper. This was one more threat against one of the few remaining independent judges. I ask her, are you not scared? No. She looks me straight in the eye. No he hecho nada malo. I haven't done anything wrong. People who know me know I'm an honest woman, hardworking, responsible, and cogent. As I've noted, Guatemala's presidential runoff is in a couple of weeks. Three of the most popular candidates were disqualified before the first round. Two candidates remain. Sandra Torres, a political veteran, a former first lady who's promised to fight corruption, but she's been jailed for it in the past and is now the preferred candidate of the establishment. And Bernardo Arevalo, the leader of a small reformist party that surprised everyone by making it into a second round. The party has made fighting corruption the centerpiece of its campaign, but it has faced official harassment. Police raided their offices and a judge has tried to knock them off the ballot. So far, they're still in the running, but the U.S. and other countries have raised concerns that the election won't be fair. We contacted a member of the Semilla Party, Guatemalan Congressman Samuel Perez Alvarez, as he was campaigning in Guatemala City. I asked him what's happened since his party came out victorious in the first round of presidential elections. Well, there has been a political persecution against our candidate. Uh, we don't know uh, why we are being accused. Uh, they are not telling us who are they investigating or anything. And maybe... It's something that they want to show to the media, but in our political program, uh, the most important thing is uh, to put an end to this uh, corruption regime uh, that has been the normal thing in Guatemala from the last maybe 20, 30 years. So all these political actors and economic elites that have been living uh, from that regime they're very afraid because we're going to put an end to that. So as you've made clear, one of the central promises that your party has made is if you win the presidency, you're going to fight corruption. What's the plan? 
Well, there, there are a lot of plans because it is not only like fighting against corruption, against political actors, but also changing the system that makes it very easy to commit acts linked to corruption. So we have to make changes in the public administration, strengthen public institutions. We do not see the fight against corruption exclusively from the criminal prosecution, but we uh, see the uh, fight against corruption from a public policy. So does this mean that corrupt politicians won't go to jail? No, we are going to start investigation against corrupt politicians, but that is not the way because that's one just incentive after committing a crime linked to corruption. But we have to make it very hard in order to stop corruption from its roots. We cannot make that only by criminal prosecution. We have to change incentives. Why do you think uh, the U.S. in particular should pay attention to these coming elections in Guatemala? Because the fighting against corruption, it's not only trying to get investigations in the public ministry against these uh, political actors, but it's also changing the economic model in Guatemala or the economic system that is causing a lot of problems in terms of uh, migration, for example. And I think that fighting against corruption is also a fighting in favor of economic conditions in order to have investments. So I think that is important for the United States, but also for Guatemalan people. We talked about the presidential elections, how his party likely made it into the second round only because the leading candidate was disqualified by a court widely seen as corrupt. He acknowledged these elections lacked legitimacy. So I asked him if his party was part of the same game. Well, right now, that that is the only option. Uh, but it could be uh, if they win this election, the last time that we are like trying to participate because they do not have uh, the public support. So they have to find ways to uh, stay with the same uh, corrupt system. And that is... Uh, via dictatorship. That's Samuel Perez Alvarez, a congressman for the Movimiento Semilla Party in Guatemala. Representative, thank you. Thank you. Today on All Things Considered, our Enlighten Me series continues with Patty Crawick. She was estranged from her Ojibwe father and didn't understand much about his indigenous culture. When she reconnected with him, she discovered a new way of believing that put her at odds with her evangelical upbringing. I couldn't continue to straddle these two worlds. When I had that very clear thought that I was going to have to choose, it was, well, how, how do I choose anything but being Ojibwe? You can hear that conversation later today on your phone's web browser, a smart speaker, or in an old-fashioned radio. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good morning, I'm Steve Brown. 73 degrees in Boston at 918. Coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, a visit to the Rio Grande in Eagle Pass, Texas, by kayak. That's where Governor Greg Abbott has installed a floating barrier made of giant buoys to deter migrants. That's ahead here on WBUR. Sunny today, the high is near 83 degrees. It'll be partly cloudy tonight, a low of 66. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of showers in the afternoon. 
I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. Former President Donald Trump's legal team has been given a deadline to respond to a request for a protective order in the January 6th case. Federal prosecutors asked a judge for the order after Trump released an online post that appeared to promise revenge on anyone who goes after him. A tropical storm is once again heading towards southwestern Japan. It's the same system that hit the region several days ago. Government officials have issued new warnings for torrential rainfall and mudslides. Pope Francis is wrapping up a five-day trip to Portugal. More than a million people packed a riverside park in Lisbon last night for an evening prayer service. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Ader Peralta. Some state Republican parties are struggling in Colorado, Michigan, and Minnesota, to name a few. The party's organizations have suffered heavy election losses and are experiencing deep disagreements about the future of the GOP. Colorado Public Radio's Benta Berklin reports. I'm here at the Republican Party headquarters, about a half hour south of Denver. It's dark on the inside, the blinds are drawn, and no one has picked up when we've knocked on the door or tried to open it. And there's a reason for that. Even though the party is still renting office space, there's been lackluster fundraising. And for the first time in years, it's not paying any members of its staff. Republicans don't hold any statewide offices, and at the State House, they have fewer lawmakers than at any time in Colorado history. There's been a lot of finger pointing as to how it got this way. The party needs to be rejuvenated. It needs to get back to the basics. Republican Lori Sane is a former lawmaker and close with many conservative activists. She says they feel like the party establishment has abandoned them. Because otherwise, if you don't have the base, you're not going to win. This year, the conservative wing of the party elected a new state party chair, Dave Williams. He declined an interview request for this story. But during his acceptance speech, Williams promised to go up against Republicans who he thinks aren't conservative enough. There are too many politicians who say one thing and then do another, and it's not just the Democrats. It's people like Liz Cheney, Mitt Romney, and Mitch McConnell. They need to start listening to us. In emails to the party this summer, Williams blasted a Colorado congressman for voting for the debt ceiling bill and other officials for signing a letter in support of a trans lawmaker in Montana. I think that is the first time in Colorado political history 
a state Republican Party has put out a fundraising letter saying, we're going to go after Republicans with the money you send us. That's former Colorado GOP Chair Dick Wadhams. We met outside of a coffee shop near Denver to talk about what he thinks the issues are. He voted for former President Donald Trump twice. But in this political environment, Wadham says he's been told he's not a true Republican. He says it's not the job of a state party chair or others in the party to police conservative values. It comes down to fealty to Trump. And if you agree with Trump that the election was stolen, and now if you agree that with Trump that he should pardon, if he's elected again, that he would pardon the people who attacked the Capitol. If that's the litmus test, then you're damn right, I am a rhino, because I will never subscribe to that. All of the infighting is also taking a toll on the party's bottom line. Many donors are like longtime Republican Pete Woods from Steamboat Springs, who says he won't financially support the state party until the vitriol stops. As long as people are calling each other names and handing a gift to the Democrats through exhibiting our division and our disdain for each other, there's no value in me donating to the party. Colorado's divisions aren't unique. In Minnesota, the state GOP this spring had just $53 cash on hand after steep election losses and deep divides. Election deniers helm Michigan's GOP the party's nearly broke and being run out of a condo. And there are states like Georgia, where sitting Republican Governor Brian Kemp faced a primary challenger after refusing to act on Trump's stolen election lies. Brian Kemp, he sold you out. He didn't look. He didn't want to look. He didn't want anything to do with it. Kemp ultimately won, but by leaning on his own campaign infrastructure, not the state parties. And back in Colorado, Republicans are gearing up for some big decisions about their future. Party leaders are trying to ban unaffiliated voters from participating in the GOP primary. Dave Williams, the party's leader, says, quote, the open primary has been devastating to the Colorado GOP. But his critics note that banning unaffiliated voters would simply consolidate more power among the state's most conservative Republicans. For NPR News, I'm Benta Berkland in Denver. It was an intense but heartbreaking morning for the U.S. women's soccer team and its fans. If you were up early watching, you know that the team was knocked out of the World Cup against Sweden. The two teams were scoreless after extra time, but the U.S. lost in a suspenseful penalty shootout. At first, it seemed like goalkeeper Alyssa Nair blocked a shot by Sweden's Lena Hortik. But the video assistant referee showed the ball cross the line by just a hair. At the start of the tournament, some soccer aficionados thought the U.S. women might win their third consecutive World Cup. But they haven't done as well as they had hoped. While they dominated this morning's match, they just couldn't get past Swedish goalkeeper Zetra Mušević. After the match, the U.S. coach called his team brave. He also said that soccer can be a cruel game sometimes. The U.S. team shed some tears on the sidelines as Swedish players celebrated and ABBA's dancing queen played over the stadium's loudspeakers. Sweden will face Japan in the quarterfinals on Friday. (laughs) 
It is ice cream weather, but you may notice an extra sprinkling of security along with your frozen confection. Stores have been cracking down on shoplifting, and some of their solutions are anything but vanilla. And PR Stacey Vanek-Smith has the scoop. It is a brutal summer day in New York City. 85 degrees and so humid that the second you walk outside, you are soaked. In weather like this, there's just one thing your brain is screaming for. We're in a grocery store in New York, and what what are we looking at here? Take a look in the frozen food case and look at what they're now doing with Haagen-Dazs. Bill Lempert is a food industry analyst. We met up at his neighborhood grocery store in the ice cream section. You know, that beautiful wall of pints and all those flavors. Except here, the ice cream has an extra topping. It's like a lid lock. It's, it's absolutely a lid lock. We're looking at probably the ultimate in theft protection, a plastic device that's about an inch high that fits on top of a pint of ice cream. So it avoids theft of ice cream. This is like quite a device. Look at it this. Is. It is called the pint lock, and it makes it almost impossible to open the ice cream container. It is intended to thwart the Butter Brickle Bandits, the Cookies and Cream Crooks, the Chubby Hubby Hustlers, the Rum Raisin Robbers. But now that ice cream, you know, is running five to six dollars for a pint, more people are stealing it. The dreaded Pint Pirates, who apparently will just sweep a passel of pints into an insulated bag and just stroll out of the store. The people that steal it then go to bodegas and they're selling it there or they're selling it on street corners. There's right. hot ice cream. Right. But Lempert says it is not just hot ice cream. It is other high ticket items, razors, laundry detergent, teeth whiteners. Everything you might notice is suddenly behind protective glass at your grocery store. It is all getting swiped at record rates. Lempert says he hears this from store owners all across the country. Their number one concern is theft. There's no question about it. Theft or shrink as they call it in the biz, is really costing retailers nearly $100 billion a year, according to the National Retail Federation. Lempert says where shrink used to affect around 1%, 2% of store inventory, it's now more like 5 6 7%. And because most stores don't have huge profit margins, that can make the difference between a store turning a profit or losing money. Whole Foods has closed their flagship store in San Francisco because of theft. Aldi announced one of their stores in Baltimore, they're closing because of theft. Lempert thinks it's a combination of retailers being short-staffed, the rise of self-checkout, the decriminalization of some kinds of theft, and mostly the ease of reselling everything online. Right now, retailers are scrambling for solutions. Target, Lowe's, CVS, and a bunch of others formed a loss prevention research council where they test out new technology like AI and smart shelves. They even have a special test lab where they run through different shoplifting scenarios. Like, say, if somebody's trying to steal a pint of ice cream. All right, so I'm gonna buy some ice cream because I want to okay. see them unlock it. Do you have a favorite flavor? Um, pistachio. We grab our pint of pistachio with its strange plastic helmet. Which, by the way, probably costs more than the ice cream that's inside. In fact, this isn't far off. The pint of ice cream costs almost $6, and each lid lock costs $5. Now, the store keeps the lid lock. It unlocks my pint at checkout with a special machine. Do you, like, unlock them? Yeah, the checker sets the lids aside. There we go. And now the pint lock can be used again to defend the dark chocolate, protect the peppermint, 
secure the Spumoni. Thank you. Thank you. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. On the eve of World War II, as the Nazis grew more brutal, many Western countries severely limited the number of Jewish refugees that, were, that they were willing to take in. So some Jews, nearly 20,000 of them, fled east instead, specifically to Shanghai, China. NPR's Matthew Sherman reports on a new exhibit in New York that explores this little-known chapter of history. In 1938, when Jerry Lindenstrauss was 10, his family finally decided to leave Germany. There was one place in the world where he could go to, and that was Shanghai. That's because much of Shanghai had been divided up decades earlier among European powers and had long harbored foreigners, including Jewish people. Most importantly, it did not require a visa to enter. We left in, in 1939 on the last German ship from Bremerhaven to Shanghai. He said his family didn't know what to expect. There was no internet, there was no social media. We didn't know anything about Shanghai. It was like on the other side of the world. Lyndon Strauss spoke at the opening of an exhibit in Lower Manhattan that includes stories of individual refugees like him, plus photos and replicas of other artifacts. The materials taken from the Jewish Refugees Museum in Shanghai the refugees survived the Holocaust, but still faced persecution. Japan had conquered Shanghai a year earlier and soon forced all Jews into one district. Living conditions were crowded and unhealthy. Ellen Krakow was born after her parents moved to Shanghai. Two bedrooms, 10 people living there. You know, if you were lucky, you had indoor plumbing, a toilet, otherwise what they call honey pots. The refugees tried as best they could to recreate the community they had in Europe. Lawyers and doctors set up shop, Jewish schools were established, musicians formed orchestras, and in fact, inspired a generation of Chinese to learn European classical music. China was, you know, under such uh, uh, pressure and a difficult time. You know, the old uh, uh, values were collapsing and then, um, and then the Japanese invaders. Sean Gao, a music professor at the University of Delaware, is developing a musical, Shanghai Sonatas, based on material from the museum. So something Western um, that was introduced by the, by, uh, the Europeans and, and some of them were actually introduced by these Jewish refugees um, made them think this is a way to look for hope. In the story, a former Chinese opera singer sends her son to take lessons with a Jewish violinist. The descendants of these refugees hold the stories they've heard of this time close to their hearts. They keep track of how many relatives are alive today thanks to that one ancestor who rode out the war in Shanghai. Some have even adopted Chinese customs, like exchanging red envelopes full of cash for the Lunar New Year. Jerry Emos, a grandson of a refugee, is creating a nonprofit with the museum to foster connections among refugee families. We want to gather, we want to find out all the descendants from that era. Imas is unusual. After World War II, most Shanghai Jews moved to Israel, the United States, or back to Europe. Imas's grandparents stayed in Shanghai. His mother learned Chinese and married a Chinese man. Imas himself still lives in Shanghai, as does a small Jewish community. We want to keep the story in memory, uh, generation by generation. Otherwise, I'm still aware 
and my my son, my grandson, when they grow up, if we don't if we don't leave something, they might forget. The exhibit at Fosun Plaza in Lower Manhattan is open through the middle of the month. Matthew Sherman, NPR News, New York. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Thank you for spending part of your morning with 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Steve Brown. Harvard Law School professor Charles Ogletree is being remembered as a towering figure in civil rights and law. Ogletree died Friday at the age of 70. Guy Oriel Charles is the Charles J. Ogletree Jr. Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. The position was created to honor Ogletree. Professor Ogletree was uh, a legend, a legal giant. Uh, He counseled presidents. Uh, He founded uh, one of the leading race and law, the leading race and law institute here at Harvard Law School. He was involved in the community. Um, He was a brilliant legal thinker trying to think about racial justice and questions of racial equality across a number of different areas, uh, but including criminal uh, law reform. Um, So he is someone who had a tremendous impact on not just the law, uh, but on American society much more broadly. Mm -hmm. What is Professor Ogletree's legacy? I think is uh, a number of different legacies. So first is his academic legacy. Um, So the books that he has published on um, law reform, on criminal justice, uh, on racial equality, uh, that will stand the test of time. Um, his personal legacy in terms of the people that he mentored um, as as a professor, um, as uh, someone who taught uh, presidents. Uh, so that's another tremendous legacy. And then the third is the grace and dignity that he displayed throughout his life. Um, people, people will remember Charles Ogletree for a lot of reasons, but one of the things that you hear about is what a kind, generous, thoughtful person he was, what a person who carried himself with tremendous dignity, uh, tremendous courage, and tremendous grace. You hold the professorship established in honor of Charles Ogletree. How has his work influenced your research and your views? Um, Absolutely. So there are a number of things that I admire about Charles Ogletree's academic work. Uh, First is his bravery. So he was not afraid uh, to look at difficult questions, to ask difficult questions, and to think about things that are hard and to try to work them out. Uh, He was deeply committed to racial equality. He was deeply committed to racial justice. uh, And that particular aspect of his work has had a profound impact up on how I approach my work, um, as well as my own academic scholarship. So his work has an impact even now at a time when civil rights are being challenged here in this country? His his work um, completely speaks to this moment in many ways. um, He foresaw uh, this moment. He was trying to think about the questions of inclusion and racial subordination and trying to create an environment where everybody can come together as equals. Mm-hmm. Anything else you'd like us to know about Professor Ogletree? You know, I, mean, I think he, he, he was um, a singular force, and he carried himself with such dignity 
and he touched people both high and low. So what was remarkable to me about Professor Ogletree is that this is a person who hobnobbed with presidents and celebrities, but who also will meet someone on the street and they can become fast friends. So he did not care about your station. He did not care about who you were. He was someone who was willing to reach out to whomever, no matter where you found yourself. And he had such an impact on people. And that impact can't be, you know, like you can't overstate um, how strong of an impact he, he had on individuals, no matter who they were. And I think that is one of the things that I will always remember about him. Guy Oriel Charles is the Charles J. Ogletree Jr. Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. Former President Barack Obama calls Ogletree a remarkable man. Ogletree was a mentor to Obama and Michelle Obama when they attended Harvard Law. In a statement, Obama said he and Michelle are heartbroken. Charles J. Ogletree died on Friday. He disclosed an Alzheimer's disease diagnosis seven years ago. Ogletree was 70 years old. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Whatever your summer plans might be, maybe you're heading off to the Berkshires or the Cape or even, God forbid, somewhere outside Massachusetts, take me with you. Download the WBUR app and you'll have every episode of Wait, Wait at your fingertips. You can listen to WBUR live from anywhere and rewind if you missed something or just want to hear one of my bon mots over again. Get the WBUR app and never miss Wait, Wait. This is 90.9 WBUR. A man is in custody after an hours-long standoff in Charlestown last night. Boston police SWAT teams and negotiators came to a Caldwell Street apartment around 4.30 yesterday afternoon for reports of an emotionally disturbed person. Witnesses said he had a firearm. Officers negotiated with him for hours until about 1 a.m. this morning. He was taken to a local hospital for evaluation. Now, the loss for the Red Sox yesterday, the Blue Jays beat the Sox 5-4. to four. The Sox try to avoid the sweep this afternoon. It'll be sunny today, the highs near 83, partly cloudy tonight, low around 66 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture with Goldfest, a celebration of the 50th anniversary of hip-hop, August 12th, boston.gov slash goldfestival. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Ada Peralta. Fleeing in a panic is not recommended. When we first meet Jung Ah Cha in the new novel, The Apology, she has fled in a panic after a meeting at her grandson's home in Chicago. She's running to the degree that a 105-year-old woman can run down the street. To my left, houses and houses and trees, vicious large trees and across the street to my right, more trees. In the very periphery of my vision, they crowded me, judged me. What gave them the right? I raised a fist at them and then hurried on to increase the distance between me and the house I'd left. Increase the distance between me and my family in that house. 
judge me? Yes, they were judging me. That's our next guest, Jimin Han, reading from The Apology. It's a family saga that begins with the main character's death in America, tells her story in Korea, then South Korea. We learn about her lost family, her regrets, and why in the afterlife she needs to make it right. Jimin Han, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. So how would you describe your main character, Jung Ha Cha? What might it be like to be around her? She's 105 years old, and she is very protective Mm -hmm. of herself and her family and very unwilling to share her deepest hurts and admit anything she's ever done wrong. Yeah, I mean, she also seems really well off. I mean, she's got uh, a young personal assistant who does everything she asks. And even though she's 105, she tells her story in a very youthful voice, funny, but at times impatient and inflexible and insecure. Why did you want to write a novel about this kind of character? My mother died in 2016, and she had told me stories about when she was younger, and particularly stories about her parents. My grandmother, her mother, raised me till I was four, Hmm. um, and we moved here from Seoul at the time. And so after her death, I was thinking a lot about what she told me. Um, I had written fragments of a character who was in a lot of pain, who was missing people. Um, I'd heard all my life that my father had not seen his mother after he was 15 because of the Korean War. And uh, my mother missed her family as well because we couldn't travel back and forth. Hmm. And then um, when I was in high school, I had a chance to go to Korea and I met some of my mother's friends and they were so different from my mother. They were her childhood friends. And I just felt like such a disconnect from the Korea she had told me about and the Korea that I saw around me. My mother also is one of four sisters, and I wanted to give Jung-a those sisters because I just just think that they're so funny when they're together. Hmm. Why did you choose to make her and her sisters so old? I think it's because I wanted to write more of a comic novel. Hmm. I mean, this is not a serious novel in that kind of way. I, I just wanted to push and push to the extreme. At the same time, I thought it would make it more interesting when she died to be 105 as opposed to being younger um, and, and give her this sort of entree into the afterlife. So, I mean, at the center of this story is a scandalous family secret, right? Her great-granddaughter and her great-grandnephew have fallen in love and neither of them know that they're related. This prompts her and her two older sisters to travel to the U.S. Why is a marriage between third cousins such a problem for Jung-a? It's really not, right? It is another uh, kind of way to get at how we make problems. We make problems hmm. for ourselves that aren't even there. It is that the way that she was raised and in Korea because of the... I don't know, genetic pool, there's a lot of bias against marrying people who are too related. Like, I'm a Han. Mm. I'm in the Han clan. Apparently, there's only one Han clan. So um, <laughs> it would be frowned upon if I married someone who was 
Han. So I wanted to show that she was very sort of old fashioned and rigid in her thinking. So the afterlife section of this book, uh, after Jung uh, is hit by a bus in Chicago, it's fascinating. She arrives uh, in her old body and she's tormented by ghosts, one who's taken the form of her missing sister. They're trying to teach her a lesson. How much did you turn to Korean mythology and beliefs to build this part of the story? Yeah, I um, have done a lot of research on Korean shamanism, and in Korean culture, as I understand it, and it's very specific to my parents and where they grew up, it's so different. Korea has so many different religions and, and different ways of looking at life and death this way. But my parents didn't see the afterlife as being so different. It was comforting to see that um, ghosts are not ones to fear. In this afterlife that you have in your head, um, mm -hmm. is it expected for ghosts to contact the living in the manner that, that you write? And that is, you know, spirits uh, learning to walk through walls or to inhabit cell phones, airplanes, spirits uh, talking through mediums, usually badly. Junga has quite a time trying to figure out how to get in touch right. with her personal <laughs> assistant from, from the afterlife. Right. I will tell you that my father took my mother to Korea when she was sick. And so I went to visit her and then soon after she died. So then I returned for her funeral. And particularly that year, there were all kinds of experiences that I had that I couldn't really explain. When they would happen, I would just feel comforted. The other day, my cousins came from Korea to visit and they brought their youngest sister who had taken care of her husband with Alzheimer's for years and so had never been able to travel outside of Korea. They, they brought her here, they took her around. I found street parking in Manhattan so easily. It was like a miracle. <laughs> Some ghosts were helping you. Yeah. <laughs> we also find out why the book is called The Apology. It's what jung has to do in order to settle things. How much of this story is an answer for Koreans who never knew what happened to their family members when the country split? I hope it makes people feel connected in some way, even if they can't be there. My uncle is approaching 86 now, and um, it's just so sad for him that now at his age, it seems less and less likely that he'll ever see his family again. or in North Korea and or find out what happened to them. So, yeah, I want it to be hopeful that there's some possibility, some way to connect again. That's Jimin Han. Her new novel is The Apology. Thank you so much for talking to us about it. Thank you. The singer-songwriter Connie Converse has been described by fans as a female Bob Dylan. A ship sails tonight for Singapore. But when she made music in the early to mid-50s, no one really paid attention. So she left the music scene and decided to start a new life. Then one day, out of the blue, she and her music just disappeared. Under which it will 
Decades later, a few people heard an early Connie Converse recording and became instant fans. They've been working ever since to share her music and story with the world. Her album, Musics, comes out this week. Howard Fishman is the author of To Anyone Who Ever Asks, The Life, Music, and Mystery of Connie Converse, and he joins me now. Welcome. Hey, Ader, thanks for having me. So for those of us who don't know her, uh, who is Connie Converse? Connie Converse was a trailblazing, pioneering music maker in the 1950s. She grew up in New Hampshire. She went to college in Mount Holyoke, dropped out, moved to New York City to pursue being a writer. And then after being there for a few years, began delving into making music at a time when the music that she was making really had no context. So she was never able to break through commercially because record company uh, executives didn't feel like there was any way to market her music. Hmm. We mentioned earlier that she at some point disappears. Um, I mean, so she's gone and we know nothing about her after that point? Yes. Um, what actually happened is after deciding that music maybe wasn't the avenue that was going to be open for her, she left and moved to Michigan where she, for the next decade plus, she worked as a social justice champion, uh, working in conflict resolution, working against police brutality. And then, yes, she disappeared completely in 1974. She wrote letters to family and friends saying that she was going to start a new life somewhere and not to come looking for her and has never been heard from again. Wow. So as I mentioned, your biography of Converse came out earlier this year. How did you first encounter her music? I first heard a Connie Converse song at a holiday party in 2010. When I heard it, I had the feeling that I had heard the song all my life and also that I had never heard it before. And the combination of those two feelings gave me goosebumps and uh, started me down the rabbit hole that led to the book that I released a few months ago. What captured me about Talking Like You was the feeling that there's no way that she could be real. I thought it was a hoax. I thought it was somebody today making music that had created a Connie Converse character and this backstory about somebody disappearing as a way to market their own music. There wasn't any other music being made in the early 1950s that sounded like this. And to me, if the music was real and was as good as it was, it seemed impossible to me that she could have been obscure for 50 years and would only be just being recognized now. So this album is called Musics, uh, and it comes out August 11th. It's the second album of her work that's been released in recent years. Tell me about it. I mean, when did she make this one? She made this in 1956. And what's exciting about this album is that unlike the previous Connie Converse album, which is called How Sad, How Lovely, that was a compilation of 1950s era Connie Converse songs and recordings, some of which were recorded by her, but most of which were recorded by somebody else. Hmm. And it was assembled for the purpose of introducing her to a listening audience for the first time. Musics is the album Connie Converse wanted to be made. She recorded it herself. She sequenced it herself. She titled it Musics, and it represents her vision. Hmm. So let's play some more music uh, from this new album. Uh, it's a song about how maybe inevitably we all end up alone. It's called One by One. And 
it's haunting because she disappears in real life. We go walking This song just really struck me, Howard. I think I live in Mexico, which is a place where more than 100,000 people are reported missing. And, and what you learn here is that disappearance is more heartbreaking than death even because it leaves people in a kind of purgatory. They're neither dead nor alive. I wonder if that's the feeling you get about Connie Converse, that she exists in this purgatory. I do have that feeling, and I also feel that, in a way, her, she's a ghost. It's like her entire life was spent as an invisible woman who was able to see the future by giving us these gifts and thinking and writing and composing in ways that are so common to us today, but were not at all common in the 1950s. And then at age 50, she chose to go and we don't know what happened to her. Her body was never found, her car was never found. Wow. So much of what we know about Connie Converse is because of her brother, Paul. Um, He saved her recordings, diaries, and journals. And one of the songs on this album she wrote for her other brother, Phil, as a wedding gift, as I understand it. It's called Where Are the Roses? It's a a mournful song. I mean, especially to give someone for their wedding. Uh, what do you make of that? Yes, uh, there's a mournful quality to the song. She's asking, where are the gifts? Where are the presents? Where are the roses? Where are the guests? They've all disappeared. Uh, and yet, um, our love will always remain is sort of the theme of the song. Do you have another song uh, that you would like us to hear from the album? Another song that has not been released until now is called When I Go Traveling. And sure, I'd love to hear a little bit of that. She had wanderlust throughout her life and she took far-flung road trips going cross-country in a car in the late 40s at a time when people weren't really doing that just for the hell of it. It's what I think of when I hear of when I go traveling. Hmm. What do you think Connie would think uh, of the album being released right now? I think that she would want people to hear it. I mean, I, I believe that she felt strongly in her music that she knew that it was good and important. And I think that she wanted posterity to have it. Howard Fishman is the author of To Anyone Who Ever Asks, The Life, Music, and Mystery of Connie Converse. Connie Converse's album called Musics is out August 11th. Howard, thank you so much. Ader, thanks so much for having me. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Ader Peralta. Beecher Liederman does our theme music. Aisha Roscoe will be back next week. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, 
working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good morning, I'm Steve Brown. Wait, wait, don't tell me is coming up next at 10 o'clock. The United States has been eliminated from the Women's World Cup after losing to Sweden 5-4 in a dramatic penalty kick shootout. It was another loss for the Red Sox yesterday. The Blue Jays beat the Sox 5-4. Same two teams go at it again this afternoon. It'll be sunny today. The highs near 83, partly cloudy tonight. The low around 66 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. In Phoenix, the average high temperature last month was 114 degrees. This ER doctor saw a spike in people needing treatment for severe heat stroke. So use a body bag because it's non-permeable and cover them with ice, bury them with ice and water. That and other stories from the front lines of extreme weather and other climate-driven emergencies on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.